welcome to the latest episode of uh, Podcast 501 Fix. Um, I'm your host this evening, Bradley Osop, on a, on a rainy Sunday evening in Lincoln. Uh, and I'm joined here today uh, by Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. Once again, the weather's much nicer in London. Yeah, always the way. Um, um, <laughs> I'm also joined by Callum Watt. Who is looking out of his window at a rather more cloudy sky, but it has been warmer here as well, I suppose. Uh, and I'm also joined by Ollie Whalen. Hello, everyone. It's not too bad in uh, North Yorkshire. It's, uh, yeah, not too bad at all. Fantastic. Link, Link has got the worst weather of the bunch then, by the sounds of it. Fantastic. Absolutely. Um, Lincoln does not have it as bad as other parts of the world, though, however. Um, so the first story we're going to discuss tonight is the California wildfires that are still raging as we record this. Um, so according to the BBC, um, there's at least 560 fires raging um, across California um, in some of the largest blazes the state has ever seen. Um, and at least at this point, at least six people are known to have died um, from the fires, but obviously they're still ongoing, so that figure could rise. Um, now, now obviously, um, specific weather events um, and, and events like this can't be linked to climate change. Um, obviously, America has a long history of wildfires um, and other parts of the world, like Australia, do as well. Um, but obviously, the, the science tells us that these sorts of events are going to become more and more common. Um, uh, as the planet warms and, and as climate change really starts to, to kick into gear. Um, and I, I think it's very reminiscent of, of the wildfires we saw at the start of this year, um, back in January. Um, the, the big news story was massive wildfires um, in, in Australia. Um, and, you know, on a scale not really ever seen before there. Um, and, and the mass damage to, to wildlife and, and infrastructure and obviously human lives as well. Um, and, and that really, I think, probably set the tone for 2020 um, and, and everything that was to come. So, um, Callum, Callum Roper, what, what are your thoughts on this and, and, and the challenges that climate change um, is putting in front of us? Well, I think that it's it's obviously, as, as you rightly alluded to, we've got to be careful in immediately shouting, well, this is definitely was, was never going to happen if we didn't burn fossil fuels, because in, in these areas of, of California... Uh, in Australia, in other areas of the world, bushfires are something that's happened before and, and will happen again. But you're completely right to say that what's happening is that we're seeing the world heating up. And when the world heats up, these these areas become far more drier, far more like a tinderbox, far more likely to go up. And as far as I know, the the news has been saying that it's it's because of a lightning strike. And we've got to remember that the hotter the weather gets, the more humid it can get and therefore the more likely we're going to have of lightning strikes and and rest of things like that that will start these fires not just uh, selfish individuals lighting small fires that end up dominoing out of control i think that another news story going back to australia that's that's really shown the extremes of of the weather because it's not just the heat it's also extreme colds that we're seeing um in australia areas that were ravaged by fire only at the start of this year, are now covered in snow, and that's the that's the that's the problem. Is it's about extremes. It's not just about global warming. As you know, people say, "Oh, well, you know, we've had a cold cold few months, so it must be fine." But it's about these extreme weather events. It's about far more dangerous weather events that could see loss of lives and see destruction of of towns, cities, people's livelihoods. And I think we should be concerned about it. Because it's happening more and more, and it's happening in places that, well, really, they never would have expected such large-scale fires, such large-scale weather events. But now it's it's becoming a, a, a norm, and, and I think it's worrying that that's, that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And then, uh, do, do you feel that we're prepared to, to deal with, with uh, these events escalating in, in the UK and, and across, across the globally uh i i don't think we're prepared as it currently stands um as i understand it there was something like fourteen thousand firefighters deployed in california to to battle these fires um but if if we have an, a number of cases like this we're going to need more firefighters we're going to need more equipment and i don't think we're prepared as it currently stands to actually combat the climate crisis that we find ourselves in 
Because if we don't address that, then a lot of efforts in terms of preparing for these things might be in vain because we won't be able to to coin a phrase that Boris likes. We won't be able to play whack-a-mole with weather events if it's happening everywhere. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. And I, I think I think those of us involved in, in, in client politics in any sort of way, you know, whether at a grassroots level or, or, or you know, IPCC or whatever, you know, any, anyone involved in, in the client movement has been obviously raising alarm bells for, for a couple of decades now, um, at least, about how, how imminent a threat this is. Um, but but I think I think for me certainly, and if anyone feels differently, feel free to step in. But for me, it, it always felt a little bit abstract. You know, it's sort of like I knew the further down the century. For I mean, you know, in, in some countries around the world, actually, climate change the effects of it are being felt now, and, and people are dying now as a result of, of climate change. And um, but certainly for for countries like the UK, I think we're, we're sheltered to some degree from it. Um, but we always knew that you know further down the line in th- this century. You know, as climate change kicked in, we'd we'd start to see, um, you know, quite quite severe impacts of it, whether that be directly because of, of weather events or you know th- things like migration and, and economic impacts and all that sort of stuff. But but it always felt a little bit abstract. It was sort of like logically, I know that that's going to happen, and therefore we need to mobilise and do things. But I think what for me at least this pandemic has done is is made it maybe feel it in an emotional way, and and actually it, now we can see that actually things that previously might have been seen as very unlikely or rare events that okay logically maybe we should put some money into dealing with this um but really it's probably not going to happen and there's other things we need to worry about um i feel like coronavirus has blown that out of the water um now and and for me i i feel not just a, a logical realization that climate change is coming and that we need to do something but i actually feel it in a, on a kind of an emotional level to, to some degree and that actually you know big, big disasters big terrible things can actually happen um, and and actually our government is not prepared for it in any way shape or form um I, i've got multiple hands up callum what do you, do you want to come in on that i thought ollie was first but um what i was going to say was that i find it interesting when you get opposition to doing things about climate change obviously it's a little bit rarer these days um but sometimes it has an almost a religious basis which is that um, you know we are meant to be the ones to inherit the earth and the resources are there for us to exploit and so on um, and people who believe that are the same people that believe that uh, climate change is nothing to do with us whereas I would sort of turn it round and say well hang on a minute this is this is basically the next stage in our evolution this is proof the the science is showing us that we are having a demonstrable impact on the climate we are terraforming our own planet intentionally or not so we made it guys um and i think you can have a positive spin on it in the sense that if this is something we are having an impact on it is also something we can change ourselves um and change the destin- destiny of our species uh, the climate is going to continue changing no matter what we do even if we stopped um emitting emissions tomorrow um but in the long run we can adapt to it we can adapt to this change and we can hold back the tide a a little bit and make things better that way i think that's a a good way of spinning it to people it's not very done very often ollie what do you think well um i think it's uh it's quite saddening to see uh these early signs arguably of what are worsening states as you say i think um it's worth talking about um climate refugees which are going to be a, a thing of the future a lot where where millions and millions of people are displaced from from coastal areas um mainly in the global south um undoubtedly affecting the uh the world's poorest uh, far more severely than uh, north america and europe um, we're going to see massive uh, disruptions in in uh, in crops, and we're going to see massive droughts in many areas. And uh, I think it's also worth mentioning. I've read quite a few times that these are these are the effects of um, of carbon in the atmosphere from from twenty years ago. So uh, so who knows how it's going to be twenty years in the future, where we're going to feel the effects of continued mass production of uh, and use of fossil fuels. Um, I think 
I think the the Paris Agreement, which was signed in uh, 2016, it, it's a start, but it doesn't go nearly any, anywhere near as far uh, enough as it as it should. There's a there's a book uh, which was released earlier this year in February, which uh, I've just ordered my copy of. I'm quite excited to uh, get my hands on it to read. And it's called uh, The Future We Choose, uh, Surviving the Climate Crisis, which is by um, two authors, uh, Tom Rivett Karnak and Christiana Figueres. And it basically details um, the possible outcomes, uh, the, the worst case scenario and the best case scenario for for the climate in 2050. And uh, I think I think that's a an important thing to think about really at the moment. Yeah, I, I, I think, I think that that's true in, in terms of imagining what the different futures are that, that are in front of us. Um, I, I suppose part of the problem we have um, is that we, we seem to currently have um, political leaders in, in some of the key countries to mobilize, you know, global change. Um, some of those, those leaders are, should we say less than helpful towards, towards tackling climate change. Um, one of them is up for election again um, this year, uh, Donald Trump. He obviously famously has, has tried to pull America out of climate change agreements. Um, and, and obviously um, a lot of his base, are, should we say, sceptical of, of climate change and, and that, it, that it's man-made causes. Um, so I, th- I think it's fair to describe um, US um, attempts to tackle climate change over the last four years as having practically stalled, if not gone in reverse. Um, under Trump's leadership. But of course, Americans have a chance to change that um, in November. So the US presidential election, dis- despite the current pandemic, is still heating up um, and, and looks set to be to be going ahead in early November, uh, early November when Americans go to the polls. Um, who, who, do we, who do we think is going to win it? Who wants to come in on that? I, mm. I have a slightly pessimistic view. I strongly suspect that Donald Trump will probably win. Um just despite, because despite all the polling evidence currently. Well uh, what are polls? You know, these, these <laughs> days uh, they're, they're very rarely correct until after the after the fact. Um we we seem to find exit polls um are often very accurate, but not necessarily uh, polling leading up to the time. I I I refuse to be convinced that Joe Biden can win because he doesn't really have a distinct enough platform. I've watched, um, you know, a, a, a few reaction videos, if you like. Maybe this isn't a particularly representative example, but of Democratic voters sort of looking at Biden's initial speech from earlier this week, uh, where he talks about uh, being the light against the darkness. And then they kind of sit there and go, what what does that mean? <laughs> he doesn't. They don't really talk very much about any policy. They just know that they're everyone. Everyone knows what Joe Biden is for, but they, or, or rather, they know what he's against, but they don't know what he's for. Do you, do you um, think that's the strategy, though? Because yes, I do absolutely. Trump, Trump is so Trump is so polarizing. Yeah. I think what the what the Democrats have done is choose someone that's going to piss off the least amount of people and and, yeah. and hopefully capitalise on an anti-Trump vote. That's right. But we know that that strategy doesn't work, or at least it hasn't worked for um, uh, more than a decade, uh, either in the, the UK or the US. I mean, the, let's think the last time um, uh, Barack Obama obviously got re-elected in 2012, but it's if you look at the history of the United States, the vast, the majority of presidents usually get a second term. Um, if you think about when he actually won his first election in 2008, what did he do? He grew the votes. He went after disenfranchised voters, um, got them registered to vote. I think it was the f- 2008 was the first time uh, that um, that uh, that a president had actually won in recorded history mainly on the votes of under 40s um and that hasn't happened that hasn't happened since um don't forget like the boomer vote is a thing in the in the united states as well um whereas that isn't there uh, for joe biden he's not doing that there's been all sorts of voter suppression tactics being used um a lot of people are going to vote 
uh, via mail. I think that's going to disenfranchise people. I think Donald Trump is obviously obviously setting it up um, as an excuse as well if he does lose um, or loses narrowly to sort of try and discredit discredit the election and try and stay in power. So um, I can't say I'm optimistic about it. Obviously, um, much like the Democrats in those videos I just mentioned, I hope that he wins. I, I'm, I'm always very mindful of Yanis Varoufakis' um, sort of maxim um, about uh, when when neoliberal neoliberals are up against fascists, and that's your those are your only two choices in an election. You vote for the neoliberal uh, with as much energy and enthusiasm with which you will oppose them the day after they're elected. Um, and I hope that's the stance that many progressive Democrats will take. Um, but I don't know if they're going to succeed. I, I'm not sure that they will. Callum Roper, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you think Biden um, is, is boring enough to, to beat Donald Trump? I, I think he's the issue with Biden. I, I, I would share Callum's pessimism that I, I have a really bad feeling. I think Trump could could win again. He could win again. And and that's because what he has is uh, people in America. I wouldn't see it myself, but people see him as being a big character, somebody that's apparently showing leadership and saying what he thinks. Biden, he doesn't even remember what he said the day before. He's he he, he hasn't got what he hasn't hasn't got is the attitude of somebody that's looking to win. He's got the attitude of somebody that's trying to plug the gaps, plug the, the, the holes in the sinking ship because the Democrat, the democratic party is all over the place. It really is because it doesn't know what it is anymore. It's just sort of this, um, you know, this big corporate entity, um, any, anybody with any sort of proper progressive values are silenced. They've got no chance of getting anywhere near the nomination um, and and then you're just left with these boring people. I mean, we're we're lucky that I mean Obama has his flaws, but he was an an exception to that. He was somebody that actually galvanized younger people, showed them exactly what we want, and that was hope. That was a, a positive, uh, a, a positive image of what America could be. Whether whether he's uh, was successful in that is is a completely different debate. But he gave people that hope and gave people that chance to choose a better future. What we see in Biden is, as I say, it's a negative approach. It's very much it's very conservative in the way he's going about things. This sort of, as you say, walking this this middle line to piss off the least amount of people. And I think that that's the wrong approach. To take on someone like Trump, you need someone that's going to go out all guns blazing. He's going to be a real critic. He's going to—he or she is going to offer a, a a real alternative, a real positive alternative. And I don't think he's got that. And I think that you need that to captivate the imagination of of voters. And if you don't have that, people aren't going to bother to turn out, even if they—and if they don't want to turn out and they can't get it posted, well, you know, that's it. Really, Trump's going to end up winning it. And I think, you know, it's a depressing place for, you know, the, the, the politics, the largest economy on the planet to be. You know, is is that really the, these two men? Is this really the best that America can offer? Um, it's funny, really, because they they, um, they said that sort of thing about Jimmy Carter and, and Ronald Reagan, um, who are very different politicians in their own time. It seems to be a common theme of, of American elections. If if you're if you're a, a white man from a reasonably wealthy background, it doesn't matter how mediocre you are, you you, you can rise to the top of U.S. politics. Um, and I, I think I, I think it was Ash Takar on on Navarra Media made this point the other day. She said, you know, as much as you may disagree with Obama in terms of what he did in office with, with, with drone strikes and all the rest of it, there's there's no denying that he was exceptional in in the sense that you know he, he was clearly very intelligent he he had a lot of charisma he was able to galvanize young people and, and different demographics in the, in the US you know he he had a bit about him you could understand how he'd managed to rise to the position he had um and and then you know he's been immediately followed by Trump and and, and then possibly Biden you know two 
two men devoid of any of those sorts of qualities you would expect in in a US uh, in a in a US president. Um, and and it, Ash, Ash's point was sort of you know what what a slap in the face that is to to minority groups in America, um, that that to to be a black president you ha- you have to be exceptional you have to do everything, um, but but for a, for an old white man to get in the role it, it could just be anyone, um, it, it they, they, there's no need for them to be exceptional in in any way in that sense, um, I, Ollie I'm going to come to you. Yeah sure. Um... I've seen this argument a few times and I don't know how, how much you, you guys agree with it. Um, but basically, I've heard that what's the difference really uh, between Democrat and Republican that they they agree on uh, on so many kind of issues. The only real difference is, is on the environment and then on, on certain moral issues such as abortion and, and gun laws. Um, that they both support, well, total support for Israel they uh, they're hostile to Russia, Iran, and China. They uh, they let money rule politics, and they, they love neoliberalism. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, Democrats acknowledge climate change, but they, they don't seem to do much about it. Republicans deny it exists, which is obviously very damaging to to it. But d- does it really matter in some respects? I think. Um... Something I was going to say actually about Obama is that I actually think it's quite likely that if the Americans didn't have uh, their stupid amendment, which limits presidential terms, uh, then Barack Obama probably would still be president right now, Um, even with even with the same electorate. Um, And it's not just me just supposing that we know from many many investigations um that a lot of people who voted for barack obama also voted for trump um some years later Uh, and that's because you know a lot of voters are they're not necessarily voting rationally they're voting on who they think is the best leader who they who you know they emotionally feel um has uh the 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 right qualities for that particular moment um which is why as i say i'm a little bit um skeptical um about by about joe biden's chances um but on the question of them being quite similar parties um i think of i think the biggest issue in america is that like it's a similar issue to us is is that actually in many ways their constitution is more democratic than ours and they are constantly campaigning. Their congresses only last two years, in fact. Um, I, th- I think a congressman's term is just two years, and then a senator's term is uh, slightly longer. I think it's something like seven. Um, but the way the Constitution was set up with, the, with um, senators representing states and the House of Representatives was obviously a check against... Um, the population just deciding by a popular vote in some year um, to abolish property, for instance, that could that would that couldn't be allowed to happen. So there had to be a check and balance against that, which was achieved by having representatives of the states. Um, so in some ways it's more democratic, and in some ways it's more tied down. And obviously it's all infected with the same problem we have with first past the post. And in fact, if you look at some United States ballot papers, uh, you know you can see it. It has the Republican and the Democrat in huge font with a massive tick box at the top, and then all of the other candidates listed in smaller print below. Um, obviously there's gerrymandering going on. A lot of uh, districts are just crazy shapes you know if you ever look at an electoral map of the united states any particular city uh, you get weird panhandles tiny little streets that are counted as as part of a ward um that's uh, it's it's a really strange electoral system but the good thing about it is as i say they are always often they are always campaigning um the the squad uh, that people talk about ocasio cortez um and her colleagues i I forget the names i must confess off the top of my head i'll find them in a minute um they've all been reselected as we as we would call it so there is some grassroots activism going on to get better congressmen it's going to take time but i think there are uh people coming up 
um, within the Democratic Party who can change the way it operates potentially. Um, and I say potentially because obviously they do have quite a lot of establishment backlash. Um, they're much more entrenched as as the main party nominally of of the progressive side of politics, a bit like the Labour Party is in this country, but much more so. Um, so I think it really hinges on how successful that movement is, um, because they do have mandatory reselection, as we would call it, um, to get better people into Congress and, and also to obviously exert more pressure from outside, as we always say. So I think there is hope. Um, but with uh, with Joe Biden in power, I mean, he's moved a little bit to the left, apparently, on climate change issues. Um, we'll have to see what he actually does when we hopefully see him in the Oval Office. But he's more likely to do those things, let's face it, than Trump is. So that's the ground on which we're working. But the the reality is, is for for both the you know the US even if Biden wins, um, and for the UK even if Keir Starmer wins the next election, which which could still be another four years away, um, it it's we're we're not going to have a, a radical left Green Green New Deal in in either of those countries probably in the next you know possibly in not eight or nine years time in in one of the other countries, but so that essentially means you know it eight to nine years of, of, of in effect inaction on climate change or, or very moderate action on, on climate change. Uh, where does that leave us, really? I mean, I'll, I'll draw your attention to, um, in in this country, and we're on firmer ground, I suppose, if we're talking about Britain, if, if I may. Um, but there are, there were even in the depths of New Labour's projects, successes for the left, for example, um, on on things like fox hunting and uh, uh, and so on, um, and at least initially between 1997 and until the uh, war in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, a much more compassionate foreign policy, um, and until Tony Blair turned into a total hawk. Um, so you know things can be done, more can be achieved when there's a progressive government in power. I think that's the important thing to remember. And also, it's only fairly recently that we rediscovered that the left can win. Um, there was a very strong narrative for decades that the left in the Western world was gone. It was defeated. Communism is a thing of the past, you know, and, and therefore the future is neoliberal free market economic. Um, and obviously that got turned on its head in 2015 with the rise of Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders. But something I always maintain, and I've said it many, many times before, both of those two figures, they put themselves forward expecting themselves to not succeed, to not be as successful as they were going to be, as they turned out to be. Um, and they sort of almost accidentally arose to become the figureheads of this new left movement. Um, and something I think uh, a, psych a psychologist would know more about it than me. But when when you get people into a room together um, and are actually campaigning on the same issues, they don't they they often say, "I didn't realise there were so many people who think the same as I do." And I think a lot of we we have to take account of the fact that through these movements. There will have been many connections made between people and activists, um, which are going to endure. Uh, we know in this country there is still a strong uh, leftist movement left over from Jeremy Corbyn. There's a, probably an even stronger one in the United States because they have another figurehead in the term, terms of uh, Ocasio-Cortez, for example. But they need more people like Ocasio-Cortez, and we need pe more people in the UK. Um, like Jeremy Corbyn, and I think we're I think we're going to get them in time. Um, it's just that obviously at the moment um, there is an establishment in charge of both of our parties, um, and they are winning at, at the moment. But they won't forever because we're not going anywhere either, um, and their time will wither away in due course. Um, that's that's the reality, I think.
yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I, I think, you know, it, it, it's been quite easy to be demoralised over the, the past six months since, since the UK general election and then obviously Bernie um, dropping out of the race in, in the presidential election. Um, and I, I think we have taken a step back in, in some ways um, since then. But I think you're right. In You know, if you look at where we are now compared to where we were five years ago, I think the left in both countries is in a much better and much stronger position than it was before, actually. Um, it would nice to still be have to, to still have you know sort of people further on the left in in, in charge of or at least prominent in in those parties, um, but but I think in terms of grassroots networks in in terms of the conversation in both countries around economic justice as well, I think we're in a much stronger position than we were, um, four or five years ago, um, so yeah, I, I think you're right actually. We we shouldn't we should be concerned and and we should be prepared, but but we shouldn't be completely demoralised either. Because we, we have progressed over the last few years. Perhaps one area um, that, that we haven't progressed on, though, um, a topic we've covered before in this podcast, um, is the, the national conversation um, around refugees and, and migrants. Um, we, we talked about this a little bit last week um, with Nigel Farage and, and his, in his videos um, on the beach. He, he's done more since he, he's been going into hotels. Um, I don't know if any of you, any of you have seen these. Um, he, he's he's been trying to sneak into the hotels that uh, that migrants, um, that, that refugees and asylum seekers are, are housed in temporarily, um, when they when they arrive in the country. And he, he's basically been trying to get in and, and trying to film what goes on there. I don't really know what he's expecting to to see. To people people just staying in a hotel is probably is probably what you'll see. Um. But, you know, he, he gets a lot of traction on social media and these things and he, and he keeps the debate going and he keeps pressure on the government through doing it. Um, so, unfortunately, this this is an area where I, I don't think actually um, the Corbyn project actually managed to, to make much headway um, in terms of changing the conversation in, in, in a way it might have done on areas such as austerity. Um, Ollie, what, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, how, how do we begin to, t- to turn the tide on, on the conversation um, around refugees in the UK? Um, I mean, if you remember, this was a massive issue back in, in 2015 when you had uh, Syrian refugees and there was, there was one particular, uh, at one time there was uh, that really prolific image of, of the child which had washed up on, on an English beach um, which which really kind of parallels what happened, I think, earlier, um, late last week, sorry, I think when the the 15-year-old washed up on our, on our shores. I think, um, I don't know if it got the same kind of traction, but it, it should be framed as a, as a massive tragedy and something which, uh, which makes migrants uh, and asylum seekers much more, more human, in a sense, um, but obviously, it is quite damaging to have the, the these these right wing figures, um, which are kind of demonising migrants as well as the the actual government as well. Um, I think, yeah, we haven't come very far in these five years. There's been other uh, massive issues on on the agenda, but this is a really important one. Um, I think we do need to change the conversation somehow. Um, how we can do that with with a, a Labour leader that that refuses to have any kind of radical ideas i don't know to be honest i really don't yeah um and even with the the tragic death um, of of that 16 year old boy um you know even some of the comments i don't know if any of you saw the screenshots doing their hands um of of, on on daily mail posts that report in the news um you know quite quite a vicious group of people you know sort of celebrating or 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 laughing over it or set or or, or even the sort of, I suppose actually even a bit, yeah, because that's quite obviously just a horrendous thing to do. But there's the even more sort of sinister sort of comments that were like, um, well, obviously I don't wish this on anyone, but they, you know, they shouldn't have been trying to come into this country. You know, so I think that's almost a little bit more sinister because they, they almost sound like they're trying to be reasonable. But then, the, you know, the underlying message of what they're saying is, well, this is what you get when you try and come into our country. Um, which, you know, really, if you step back and look at that, it's absolutely appalling that, that in 2020, that that's the state of the national conversation, that there are some people happy to celebrate or at least not be that upset by um, the death of a 16-year-old boy who still had his entire life ahead of him and, and was coming to the UK to, to, to live that life. Um, Callum Ripper, what are your thoughts? Well, thinking about how do we change the the dialogue how do we change the conversation and how um 
how do, how do we end this appalling racism and discrimination against migrants? I think it starts with education. I think that people actually need to learn the distinction between a refugee and a migrant to start off with. They need to stop throwing around numbers that they're pulling out of air, out of thin air, or just hearing on social media, because most of it is is just a uh, is a is a faux hysteria over something. When you look at the actual numbers, this country does not take its fair share of refugees. This country is 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 appalling when you look at our record at taking in our fair share. The likes of Germany and France take on a lot more. And they also are seeing a right wing backlash for that. But at least their governments are stepping up to the mark and saying, we're going to take in refugees. We're going to look after them and we're going to make them welcome in our country. And I think those two things. So changing how people perceive refugees through education. I think that's extremely important. But then also changing it by saying, look at the look at the real statistics. Look at the pictures of these desperate people. They're escaping war-torn countries and they're risking themselves in one of the busiest um, shipping lanes in the world on a tiny dinghy to cross and come and live here. You don't do that if you've got a comfortable position. You would not do that if you are living at large, you know? And it, so it's I think also that, not illegal. You, 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 can, not. You, can, you can arrive in a country and, and to claim asylum and yeah. that, that's not illegal that you know if if your asylum you know application is then processed and, and denied and you stay then that's a different matter but arriving yeah, yeah. on our shores and uh, and seek formally seeking asylum is not illegal so so when you know these people are described as illegal when when they show up at, at beaches and all the rest of it it's not actually true that they're not illegal at that point absolutely and that Again, that comes down to education. People don't understand. They they throw around the um, first safe country rule that they seem to think is some sort of um, you know gold gold lined piece of piece of paper it that exist, says yeah. well it doesn't exist. It's it's a rule. It's it's basically an informal agreement between a lot of countries that nobody's followed for ages. Because actually, when you look at it most of the countries that take refugees are countries that themselves are impoverished before that countries that have not got the infrastructure have not got the financial clout like we have here to look after these people and so and there's, a, there's a really good reason why some people you know the classic is oh well you know why won't they just stay in france really simple question is ask any person that says that ask them well do you speak french a, a lot yeah. of these people won't speak french but they, they might yeah. speak english and, and they choose mm-hmm. England as as a place to stop because they they can at least you know understand the language to some degree in a way they wouldn't be able to in France. And another yeah. big reason is that they might have family in the UK already. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, there, there's two very obvious you know clear reasons why actually it, it makes a lot of sense for them to to carry on to to Dover rather than rather than stay in France. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think that just to sort of finish off, I think it's you're talking about the sort of this vicious vicious um comments and sort of people posting memes mocking this as if it's some sort of trivial thing it's it should be that's how it is you know migrants dying in the channel because they're coming here to make a better life for themselves that should not be the acceptable norm that we live in the real acceptable norm in my opinion is is one where we're taking our fair share we're looking after people um, that are refugees we're saying you're welcome here because we are a safe country and a country that treats people like humans not like numbers on a spreadsheet absolutely um callum what what's the labor party been saying about this this week very little i mean they've moved their position a little bit they've started using that they initially started by saying that the government's response was incompetent to this invented refugee crisis, and it is invented. There's 4,000 refugees who I believe are trying to uh, trying to uh, find a safe route into the UK at the moment. That's about the size of a smallish village uh, in modern times. So it's an entirely invented uh, um, crisis uh, in parentheses. But um, but no, they said they said that the government's response to it was incompetent. And through some internal pressure, they've now moved to 
saying that it, that they need to have a competent and compassionate approach. Um, so we're making progress, I guess. Um, but it is incumbent on on the Labour Party, I think, because if you just look at the way immigration dominated uh, the political discourse uh, for years, especially, I would say, between 2010 and 2015, and then how it basically almost completely dropped off the agenda, actually, uh, between 2015 and 2020. The, it, the only time it really reared its head in as an issue, obviously very notably, was uh, the Brexit referendum. Um, but after that point, and I suppose you could make an argument that people thought, oh, OK, well, that's it. We voted for Brexit, so we stopped immigration. But it really, you know, it was not really talked about as much. And that's because it uh, because Jeremy Corbyn refused to um, play into this idea that there is an immigration or refugee crisis in this country um that actually yeah we're just going to straight up say yeah we'll be compassionate towards refugees we'll take them in um we need to uh revive uh the local impact funds that i think were originally set up by gordon brown because obviously as i said last week refugees actually they can often most of the time do bring an, an economic a benefit to the country in which they end up much like a lot of most immigrants do right um but in the short term obviously you need to find people somewhere to stay you need to you know uh find them work and so on and therefore that requires a little bit of investment which is easy for a large economy like ours um and it should be a note of pride by the way that we're able to do that you know we are a, a wealthy country a great country as some people would say, why shouldn't we be compassionate um, and understanding towards our human beings? And that should, we should, what the Labour Party needs to do, as, as speaking as a member, um, is, you know, assert itself, its default position, that of course we are looking out for the rights of refugees, because, and the phrase that I'm quite glad is getting around and is gaining some traction is the only difference between them and us is luck it could easily be you and that's why we need to well that's a cliffhanger what do we need to do oh, i'm on tenterhooks here eh? i don't know what it is we need to do uh, at the no, same no, time no, as no, it as it sorry uh, go on as... Uh, just to, to finish, I thought I had sort of made my point, but my my point is they just need to make their default position, um, to support refugees, um, and then that, and that's it. The, the the Labour Party is supposed to be there for working people, no matter where they're from, and if you can make that the default position of the Labour Party, it no longer because the the media I increasingly feel, and stop me if you make if if this sounds paranoid or, or whatever but the, the media system uh, is designed to try and suppress the Labour Party um, that is that's the culture of, of, of our mainstream media is designed to suppress or manipulate the Labour Party um, and if we can demonstrate that we're not going to be played on this particular issue much like many other issues then it will drop off the agenda. It won't be important anymore. Because guess what? There isn't a refugee crisis in this country. The only reason it's being whipped up at the moment is because it forces the Labour Party to the right, and it means that the uh, that the Conservative and it forces the Conservative Party to the right as well. That's the real purpose behind this. That's what. That's why. The, that's the why the media is following these people in boats is because they're trying to influence and to make uh, British politics nastier, more right-wing, and distract as much attention as possible away from the government's failings on the NHS, on the pandemic, and all of the millions of other people who are suffering under austerity. Ollie, you wanted to come in? Yeah, sure. I I, I, uh, I, I thought that what Callum said is spot on. Um, I think... Um, when it comes to the only difference between migrants and just regular people is luck. 
I agree with that argument. I appreciate what it's trying to say, but at the same time, it shouldn't be like the only reason that we're uh, doing something about it and treating them with like human decency is the fact that it could be us. Um, but yeah, I get, I get what that's trying to say. Um, I, I think in the in the nationalistic kind of surge which has happened over the past few years, I think um, maybe it's just become extremely unpopular to have a a very kind of humanistic standpoint. I think that the UK government has kind of have lost the sight of, of its international obligations, especially uh, as it does uh, have a massive kind of arms trade, which is extremely dodgy if you look into it. Uh, I just think I just think we need more empathy and kind of basic standards of, of human decency in, in this society. But it's a shame that, uh, as Callum says, the, the media is... Uh, is still kind of whipping up the storm. Okay, Callum, the final thing was about planning, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> oh, um, do you want so to I, we cut this bit out, and you can. I don't know if you want to introduce it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Conservatives have now put forward a uh, a change to planning law, and this essentially has opened up lots of land for fast track developments. Um, but th- th- one of the big criticisms of this is that actually it only benefits big developers, these big companies that already own a lot of land and are just sitting on it and waiting for it to gain value. Um, it, it, it basically uh, undermines local planning laws. It um, Surprisingly, it, it's upset a lot of conservatives as well because uh, this is seeing a lot of what, what we would call a, a rural sprawl um, of, of sort of bands of developments um, with a couple of hundred houses popping up left, right and centre um, because they, they, they attract um, families and retirees equally to come and live there in these new builds in the, in the, uh, in the very picturesque English countryside. Um, but it's the issue that I've uh, sort of addressed with this is not that, well, it is also that it's, it's, it's putting them, the control in the hands of developers and taking it away from local government and taking it away from central government. It's very irresponsible to be effectively releasing developers to build what they wish, where they want. But it's also completely overlooking the problem that we have with social housing, that we're not building enough. I think that really what we need to be doing is investing in social housing first and then looking at private developers second. Because ultimately, when we're faced with a real crisis that is homelessness, when we're faced with people potentially losing their jobs en masse, the thing we need to be doing is not building houses for people that can afford to splash £300,000 plus on a new build house. We need to be building houses for people that are struggling, social houses up and down the country for the people that will be out of work, for the people that will see their mortgages default because of this. We'll see that a lot of people are going to be impoverished and a lot of people are going to be pushed out onto the streets. And our reaction is to build houses for the people that are well off already. And I think that that's that's a disgrace. I think the priorities are completely wrong. Same same goes when we're talking about the um, the, the stamp duty. Uh, um, reducing the stamp duty for people for buying houses our priorities are completely wrong and and i think that it's an important discussion we need to be having because housing as we know as young people is, is a big issue for us it takes a big chunk of our, our salary to pay rent and we can't really hope of affording to buy a house in certain areas of the country they're no go zones your london's your manchester's of the world we can't go there we can't live there unless we are on a good wage. So unless we start investing in social housing, I think that the whole housing market is going to continue to be rigged in favour of the rich, big developers and their rich customers. And of course, the, the other issue around housing um, at the moment is is the, the ban on evictions that's, well, it was due to come to a halt, but they, they've extended it for another month now, I believe, government. Um, yes yeah but you know it, what happens after a month's time I, I i have a worry that they, they may have extended it for, for another month now but the next time that comes around i think it will quietly be dropped or they'll try and quietly drop it 
Um, but of course, so you know, we're we're in the middle of a recession now. We we could even be at the point of a, of approaching a second wave in a month's time. Um, and you'll see renters who who already um, there's an already you know enormous power imbalance in the housing market for renters anyway, and um, mm-hmm. are going to be suffering even more as, as the furlough scheme comes to an end as well. Absolutely, and I think that we we need to be looking in the long term when it comes to our housing strategy as a country. But this strikes me as being a very short term fix. So in terms of extending the eviction ban for a month, that's that's not enough. It needs to be at least 12 months, because if the economic predictions that we're seeing for the next year and beyond come to fruition, even just a fraction of that, then we're going to need eviction bans. Otherwise, we're going to see people homeless en masse. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, after that. Um, I kind of expected the furlough scheme and the eviction bans continue to be renewed um, in some form or another, because the, it's it's maybe um, from the government's perspective, it's it's OK to throw throw out a few low paid oiks onto onto the scrap heap by making them homeless and jobless. But I don't think they've realized just how volatile they've potentially made the population. I mean, there aren't very many people who are on, you know, what you might call a comfortable salary these days. Most people are only a paycheck or two away from financial ruin. Um, Increasing numbers of people, especially people under 40, as you just mentioned, um, are privately renting. Um, And there are landlords who are now champing at the bit to chuck people out onto onto the streets, effectively. Um, And... Those people then will have, they'll have to try and claim benefits. The benefit system, as we know, is wholly inadequate. Um, you know, you have to wait six weeks in many cases for your first payments. Um, you're going to have people in this country, otherwise respectable people hitherto, um, who are going to really be suffering um, and will have no no nothing to lose and that's very dangerous i think is to have a large section of the population we've got unemployment going to be reaching unprecedentedly high levels uh that's a very volatile situation for the government to be in um this is a very strange conservative government which seems to be totally determined to use this pandemic to um upends the entire economy and upends the the the, the population as well um, and obviously the dangerous thing about that is that people aren't particularly organized um either so i i it, it's a bit unpredictable at this point um you will probably see protest marches but then obviously people might be reluctant to go on them because of the, the pandemic itself but then also, on the other hand, as we saw with the Black Lives Matter protests uh, the other month, um, when the chips are down and if it's a big enough issue, people will come out anyway. Um, so I, I'm, I'm astonished that a Conservative government is taking so many risks. Um, and we know that, obviously, we know that a second wave of the pandemic is coming. You know, I was out yesterday uh, in town. It looked like a normal Saturday night. Um, we've got rising cases in Germany um, and so on. Um, I know we're deviating somewhat from the point a little bit here. Um, I've, ju- I've, I've just realised. Um, but, you know, th- there's all of this um, stuff going on. And at the same time, these planning laws are going to be introduced, which I think are probably going to basically reintroduce the slums, um, which maybe maybe that's the end game. Because these these guys, they like to look back on Victorian imperial Britain, you know, when we were on top of the world and lionise that period. But of course, in those eras, a lot of working working people were living in, in slum conditions. So perhaps that's what we'll see. The culmination of decades of allowing developers to sit on land for years as it rises in value, now they finally have the chance to develop it and maximise their profits by putting everyone into tiny boxes. That's their goal. 
um, and people will take them because they've just been made homeless. Um, I think that's most likely what the conditions which are being created by this government. Um, and it will be interesting to see how people react to those conditions. Ollie, do you have any final thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to uh, touch on, on climate change uh, as we started on that. Um, environmentalists have warned that uh, the, this proposed reforms to the planning, the planning system will cost Britain decades in the fight against climate change and, and resign nature to isolated fragments of land. Is what they've said. I mean, I mean, it's it's very extraordinarily clear who this is for, uh, and it's certainly not the people, um, and it's certainly not the environment. It's like, as Callum says, if uh, if the government do make make twelve ridiculous changes a week, we won't know which way to look. We can't focus on on anything, especially under the the, the guise of, of media sensationalism. Yeah. Okay, um, I don't know if anyone's got any final thoughts or if we want to wrap up there. Uh, I, I would just come in and, and link this back to our, our discussion about um, immigrants and, and refugees in that we've clearly got the land to build the houses. There's clearly a willpower to build houses, but apparently we're, we're all full up, no room at the inn. So uh, there seems to be a real contradiction there. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, as I think we were saying before we started recording, uh, 3% of the UK is used for, for houses. Uh, 3% of the UK is also used for golf courses. But those golf courses, uh, they're shutting down under, under these austerity conditions that the government's been imposing. So we've got land to build on. Let's actually build on some, some decent houses and homes um, for everyone who needs a home. Um, whether you whether you're part of that four thousand who've come from abroad, or the uh, hundreds of thousands of people um, who are already homeless, um, or the potentially millions of people who are about to be made homeless, let's do three things. Let's build a wave of social housing at at a f at not just affordable rent, but a rent that's actually fair um, to maintain the property and pay for it over a long, long period of time. Um, let's do that. Let's build social housing. Let's introduce rent controls so that you don't have these landlords who are just living large off of the profits made by other people. Um, and let's also encourage housing cooperatives as well for existing housing stock. And um, what we'd like to do, I think, is get to a position where, yeah, you can be a landlord and rent it out. But if you're making only a tiny profit, um, it might be more affordable just to uh, have some sort of scheme where tenants are allowed to buy out their homes um, and form cooperatives uh, between each other um, so that eventually we get to a point where the majority of people, they either own their own home um, because all of this will also bring down house prices or they live in a council house or some form of cooperative and private renting is just a temporary thing to do, say, if you are a student or if you're on holiday. Um, but even if even taking away from that sort of perhaps utopian view, as it may seem at the moment, just starting to implement those policies policies was get us a huge way in the right direction um, away from the endemic course of homelessness uh, and impoverishment that we are presently on. Um, and that's what I would say people like Keir Starmer really need to be pushing on. Um, housing alongside climate change they are the issues of our time they are intrinsically linked um, and once they realize that um, that they should be pushing on those bread and butter issues that most people will care about that is how you ultimately overcome all of those concerns about migration and actually start willing winning over the people to your cause spot on i can't think of a better way to end the podcast Absolutely. Um, well then, folks, thanks for joining us. Um, I, I hope we haven't painted too bleak uh, a picture of the months and years to come um, from from the the fallout of the pandemic to, to climate change. Um, but as ever, we'll be organising uh, locally in Lincoln um, and, I, and I hope everyone listening will, will be organising in their local areas as well to, to try and lessen the blow of some of this stuff. 
Um, but for now, it's, it's goodbye from me. Um, it's goodbye from Callum Roper. Goodbye, everyone. It's goodbye from Callum Watt. Good evening, everyone. Stay safe. And it's goodbye from Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Uh, MPs are back on the 1st of September. So uh, so I do hope that there's more accountability to this shambolic government. That's a, a lighter note. Here, here, here. Okay, thanks, everyone.